This is the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. It will be covering a walk from the geographic centre of Australia to the centre of the nation's capital in Canberra to raise awareness of the mental health issues faced by our first responders. We ask a lot of the people in our police, emergency services and all frontline workers. That takes a big toll on them and their families, which is why this walk is happening. These are just everyday people that have to do extraordinary things. These people are just like my dad. Welcome to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. Today we have Dr. Laura Finlayson-Short, who's a research fellow with Phoenix Australia's Centre for Post-Traumatic Mental Health. G'day, Laura. Hi, Matt. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. And um, I really appreciate your time this morning. And actually, I'm really keen to talk about the uh, product that we've had a bit to do with over the last little while. And and share what Phoenix Australia and and some of the other research is actually doing for people like me. So, yeah, thanks very much. Absolutely, yeah. Um, like I said, my pleasure. And, um, you know, it's it's particularly uh, fun to come on here given that, you know, you and I have, uh, you know, this history um, over yeah. the last, I think, year or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Laura and I first crossed paths in... I suppose the tail end of my time with Fire Rescue New South Wales when they were implementing a project called the Solar Project. So, yeah, Laura, did you want to explain, uh, I guess, a bit of an overview of what the Solar Project was all about and where it's at now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are it's still kind of in the process of, of um, recruiting participants to this study, uh, which is how you kind of, you and I came to meet. Um, basically, the SOLAR project is uh, a randomised controlled trial. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to work out whether or not this particular product is something that's going to help um, emergency service workers, particularly firefighters at Fire and Rescue New South Wales, who are partnering with us for this project. Um, and I, I guess I'll kind of introduce it by giving a bit of a history of solar. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so solar itself is quite a long-running program at Phoenix Australia. So, um, you know, Phoenix does a lot of projects around um, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, emergency service workers, uh, and people who've experienced traumatic events, you know, all, all in lots of different ways. Um, and they started the solar um, program as a face-to-face program that, intervenes when people have experienced, um, initially it was people who'd experienced a natural disaster, so things like bushfires, floods, um, tsunamis, that kind of thing. Um, And uh, initially, as I said, it it was done uh, in a face-to-face way. So we would would train people in the community uh, to kind of give people the skills to improve and increase their resilience to these kinds of events. So we would kind of go in when someone, for example, had experienced, uh, you know, a a catastrophic bushfire event, um, which obviously is incredibly traumatic for people. And we'd kind of try and come in before they developed a more serious disorder, like um, post-traumatic stress disorder, or even depression or anxiety, and try and give them those skills to stop them kind of uh, going down that path. Um, And we thought, you know, this is the kind of program that can be adapted to lots of different lots of different populations. And we know that first responders like firefighters um, all across the nation and the world, uh, you guys are 
exposed to traumatic events constantly and you you know it's you have this kind of cumulative buildup of of trauma and and exposure to these things so it's um it's an unfortunate side line of that work isn't it it's just unavoidable that's right yeah Yeah, completely unavoidable and it's you know it's the kind of thing where you know we need people to do this job and where i'm sure that everyone who works in phoenix and, and and people more broadly are incredibly thankful for for the work that you all do but it it does mean that you know, you're you're going to these things that are, uh, you know, that most people would only experience once in their lifetime, if if at all. And you're doing it on, you know, regularly. You're doing it every day. Mm. So, you know, it's a population that that really needs these kinds of skills ahead of time, um, before things get really bad, um, to to kind of just deal with that, those kinds of experiences. Um, so, what we wanted to do was adapt. Uh, this program that was initially developed for people that experienced a natural disaster to first responders. And yeah, we've been lucky enough to work with Fire and Rescue New South Wales, who've been uh, really, really great partners in this project. And we also were interested in adapting uh, the face-to-face program to an app on your phone. Uh, And that is partly because it improves accessibility. So it means that you don't have to, you know, go to a particular location and meet up with someone, you know, face-to-face every week um, for five weeks, which is normally how it would work. Uh, Instead, you can, you know, it's right there on your phone whenever you want to, you know, open it up. Um, You know, it might be when you're on a... on a break at work, might be when you know you're you're waiting for an appointment. You've um, it's the end of the night and you're you're winding down um, for bed and you're like, oh, I might just have a look at this. Uh, it just makes it a lot easier for people to access. And we also, you know, we co-designed the app with firefighters um, at the beginning of the project. And we we also heard that, you know, that's really great given the types of work that uh, the types of work that firefighters do. A lot of you are shift workers. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of you have, you know, on call, so you've got two jobs, you've got a main job, and, and then you're also firefighting, and you might be on call overnight. So, you know, it's kind of, it's pretty difficult to to get to an extra appointment face to face. It's a lot easier to just have it in your pocket whenever you need it, or whenever Absolutely. you're ready. Yeah. yeah. I think um, there's also an element of, um, I guess, a lot of people are concerned about that perception piece of reaching out to get some assistance or what that actually looks like and how that might be perceived. So I, I, I guess having it on your, on your phone, which is something that you're very comfortable with and very used to using and you can do it in private, I, it, there's that added element of actually being able to do it in private, I think, too, which is um, something that obviously face-to-face engagements are uh, uh, much harder to um, yeah, conceal, if you call it that. So yeah. Yes. Yes, I mean, in an ideal world, you wouldn't need to be concealing getting kind True. of help for your mental health, but that we know that that's not the world that we live in, it's unfortunately. Not reality yet, unfortunately. No, no, maybe one day. That's certainly something yeah. we uh, we're passionate about in the mental health field is yeah. uh, reducing stigma. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's also something, you know, what you just said, that that is something that we have, um, we, we heard during the co-design process as well from firefighters is that, you know, there is a, a bit of a culture um, around, you know, of, of stigma around accessing mental health services. And you might not want to tell your employer, you might not mm. want them to, to know that you're, you know, you're struggling a little bit. Um, you might not be at the point where, you know, you need, you need to um, access those kinds of services through the, your employer. So this is kind of meant to be a more accessible stepping stone, I guess, when you're you're starting to struggle, but before yeah, right. you might need a more serious intervention. Um, yeah. 
So, yeah, it's we're very passionate about um, intervening early before things get get worse. That's um, that's kind of where this uh, this particular intervention is meant to sit inside kind of a stepped model of care. So we kind yeah, of yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. What's Solar actually stand for? Um, skills for life adjustment and resilience. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think I, I remember that right at the very start, but I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we do love a good acronym uh, in in research. <laughs> and long titles. Um, That's right, yeah. Yeah, so um, so with the that stepped engagement, or sorry, the, the graduated strategy, I guess, to looking after people, mm. is that something that you worked, so this, this step in that graduation, is this something that you worked with, say, Fire Rescue or, or is, is, I suppose, integrated into their policies to... Um, I guess, fit in as well as it can? Or is is this program that you've got something that was a standalone package, I guess, that's, um, I guess, inferred to fit into a particular slot? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it's it's a standalone thing. Um, given the way it was developed, it was it was always meant you know intended to be kind of one step up from basic psychoeducation, where it's you know you kind of go like this is what depression and anxiety are like. Yeah, it's right. one step above that, and then it's one step below going to a psychologist or a counselor. Like direct um, clinical help. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So it's meant to fit into that middle ground when you're not quite ready to go to that. Mm. Um, I have also found though from you know. My, my role in the project has involved talking to participants um, for the last year or so. Uh, and I found that a lot of people who are already accessing kind of higher levels of mental health care also find this an incredibly helpful adjunct to that. So, you know, we can, can as it's a great add on, yeah. basically. Well, that's, um, that's literally, you know, when I took part in the, in the project, I had been uh, for almost 12 months, I think, at that point in time. Uh, undertaking some fairly intensive therapies and and what I did find with the with the actual app was it was a really good concise summary of what I had done and half of which I'd forgotten over that last 12 months um in all in one place and 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 fairly easily digestible I guess in that sense mm. of you know it might have taken three three two-hour sessions to get through a particular topic of uh, whatever it might be in in things that I was working through, but actually it was a it was a really good distilled version of that more intense therapy that mm. uh, was available on the app. And you know, one of the things that I've always looked back at since being medically retired is I still look back at my time in both the police force and the fire and and in fire rescue wondering if I had have taken that time to look after myself and, and uh, implement those strategies and recognise the fact that I needed to be very aware of the fact the work that I was doing w- would take a toll on me mm. and actually accept that and deal with it and manage it, whether I'd still be there now. And, you know, I'm not uh, and I'll probably never know, but I, I, I truly believe that there's you stand such a better chance of enduring that, those traumatic events and and the the stress and strain of doing those first responder roles uh, for the long haul if you look after yourself in this way and adopt Mm. these mental health strategies or or health strategies really for the most part because it's all very intertwined. That's right. Yeah, I do do wonder, you know. I, I, I spend a lot of time wondering what I could have done differently. 
Yeah, yeah, which I can imagine is is not exactly a, a pleasant thing to to be thinking about all the time. But um, I do think that, you know, the work you're doing now uh, is something that can at least help other people who are in a similar situation. So that's, you know. Yeah, and that's, you're... that's what I'm hoping the message out is, is you know, if, if people actually take on board some of the errors, I guess, that people like myself have made and look at look at their circumstance and where they want to be and, you know, just take on board even a tiny part of the advice or the, or the, um, it's not even the advice, you know, it's, it's more so taking on board that experience that people have had and, and looking at their own circumstance and going, Mm -hmm. okay, I actually have to take this a bit serious. That's right. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, say that you've made errors. I would, I would also, you know, say that the mental health care, you know, is it, it, it's in a different place than it was, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. There are so mm. many more things that are, are available now. It's much more widely known that these kinds of things can be helpful and, you know, things that, um, you know, experiencing these traumatic events, you know, cumulatively mm. um, can be damaging. And, you know, there, you know, I do think that the culture is starting to shift a little bit, um, you know, even within organisations like Fire and Rescue New South Wales, um, you know, through this process, I've seen a lot of people kind of say like, yeah, it's not the same as it was 20 years ago. Mm. Um, things are much better. I do feel comfortable talking about, you know, accessing care with the people I'm working with, um, even with the um, managers. So I, I, I think things are, you know, maybe improving and yeah, you should uh, cut yourself some slack as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now, um, I, I mean, it's been a little while since I took part in the trial or when mm. I, since I started it and where's it at now? So who, who, who is the audience, I guess, for the solar app? Yeah. So currently what we're doing, um, and you know, I, I should, I, I kind of gave some some history of the app, but I, I don't know if I've really gotten quite to the end of that, that story. So I'll, I'll finish that off. Yeah, for um, sure. Basically, you know, we've developed this app, kind of the full name for it is Solar M, um, so Solar Mobile um, is the idea. And, yeah, we're we're currently in the middle of trialling whether or not, uh, well, basically we have a a brief version of the app and a more extended in-depth version of the app. And we're trying to figure out which one is more effective. Um, And... By you know, in order to do that, we are still in the process of recruiting participants to to use these two versions of the app. Um, they use them for five weeks, and we have a, we have what we call facilitation calls um, once a week uh, for those five weeks. And I've been the person who's um, been doing all of those facilitation calls. Um, yep, I, I remember them well. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you and I had had some good yeah. chats uh, for a five or five or six week period. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, it's been yeah. So we, we're still doing that. We're still in the process of of that, and uh, we're hoping to. We're maybe about halfway through. So yeah, maybe another kind of six six months of recruitment, hopefully, yeah, okay. and we'll hit our targets. Uh, maybe a little bit more, um, and then the the idea will be that we'll do some data analysis, see which version of the app produces better results. Um, if they produce different results at all, of course. Yeah, yeah. and uh, then you know. Basically, the, the the plan is to uh, partner with Fire and Rescue, and hopefully, you know, if we we you know we see um, effectiveness out of this from this app, um, we'll roll it out more broadly across the organisation, and it'll be you know it won't be a, a process of of filling out surveys because that's yeah, that's what we're right. we're getting people to do right now. Uh, everyone, it'll be available to everybody. Um, they won't need to meet 
you know, particular inclusion criteria for the trial. And, you know, it would be, you know, fantastic in the future if we could roll it out more broadly across New South Wales, particularly with, you know, potentially with other um, kind of first responder organisations. Yeah. Well, that's the thing with it. Like, like because I've worked in both the police and the fire, and mm. fire rescue and, mm. you know, it what's in there is it, it doesn't matter what agency you work for, it's still about you and how to look after yourself. So, yep. and actually really doesn't matter what job you're doing or who, who you're working for or what uniform you're in. It's all It's all really, you know, helpful information and helpful strategies to get you through those rough times and actually get you ready for, for more of it and, and keep you on track, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, you know, it'd be good to see something, um, you know, more broadly available for everyone. Yeah, I agree. That's certainly what we're what we're hoping for. So crossing my fingers um, yeah. that that all yeah. goes to plan because certainly my you know anecdotal experience of talking to people for the last year as they're moving through you know both versions of the of the app is that people are finding real benefits for it, uh, mm. and that's you know that's that's why I I decided to go into mental health re- research. Uh, you know, I want to help people, and it. it um, it makes me feel great when someone comes yeah. through the program and is like, "This has changed my life." It's uh, it's incredible feedback. So, yeah, I'm I'm hoping that we can keep doing that. There's a lot of researchers that actually get in the in the channel of policing and emergency service centric research and mm-hmm. don't seem to leave it. You know, there's quite a lot of people that do it long term, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Rather than more broader, you know, psychology or psychiatry, but um, you know, really focus on that stream of it. And uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess you know we all kind of have to pick a niche. Um, that's that's how you get funding. So that's that's one of the reasons. But also, I think that you know emergency services workers are you know an underserved population with very specific needs. Uh, so it's it's a really rich field of research, and it also is a place where we can do a lot of good. And that's what most of us are uh, you know here to do. I would, yeah, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Research uh, look at any similar things around the globe uh, in other, you know, sort of similar countries uh, and and projects or programs that have been implemented. Is there anything like it elsewhere? Or well, yeah. So, funnily enough, um, this the solar program, the the kind of broader one, not the not the app, um, but the broader face to face program, we have actually implemented in other countries. Oh right. Um, yeah, one of the countries, uh, my colleague Kari Gibson um, did a study in Tuvalu uh, after there was a natural disaster there. Right. Uh, and I think she's just about to take that work to the Horn of Africa as well. Wow. Um, yeah. So she's doing, you know, the incredible, incredible work uh, in in some really far flung places yeah. where there's a lot of need for this kind of thing. Um, and oh yeah, and my, I think we're also potentially doing some work in Turkey. So there's there's a lot going on. Um, in terms of other uh, other interventions like this, I'm, I can't speak to that. I'm not 100 percent sure, um, but certainly, you know, we're we're trying to um, fill a, an important niche in the Australian community um, for first responders. Well, it's uh, and I know there's probably an element of um, I, I don't like to say criticism, but um, I suppose um, what would the right way to put it be? standoffishness I don't, I don't know whether that's the way to put it but around 
using something like an app which can capture data about somebody uh, or somebody's inputs or, or mm. how they're using it or what they're looking at, how, I guess from a user perspective, how does that get managed in, in the sense of the concern that people might have that it's all being fed back to their, to their employer? How, do, mm. how is that managed? Yeah, so that is certainly something that we were incredibly aware of because um, we know that that's that's a concern that that first responders tend to have, mm. um, and and you know and we did have that feedback from firefighters when we were designing the app. Thankfully, you know, I, I haven't had too many people raise serious concerns about that through the the process of um, of the trial so far. Generally, you know, we have um, the way that we handle data um, and the assurances that we're, we're able to make to people have made people feel a bit better. Basically, you know, we none of that data gets um, sent across to to an employer. Um, we only we only um, will eventually give Fire and Rescue New South Wales in this instance um, kind of summary statistics. So they'll yeah, they'll right. get group results. No, they don't get any kind of individual results. There's no kind of there's no linking of people's names to their data. We have codes um, that we generate participant codes. Uh, so yeah, it is all handled in a completely confidential mm. way, and and it's secure as well. So yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, so, I think we're a bit of a um, ju- judgmental and questioning bunch of people. I think typically, and uh, yeah, I, I know that would be on everyone's mind. Is you know, I'm not putting my details in that thing, but you know, yeah. in my like, I, I certainly didn't find what it was actually asking me to to put in there concerning in any way either. So it's the way it's structured, mm. I think, is actually, you know, fairly reassuring. And then, yes, you know, obviously having some uh, third party managing it like like Phoenix, like a, mm-hmm. a, as a, you know, professional research entity is, is that one step removed from the employer as well. So, yeah, it is sort of, you know, quite it's quite comfortable to use in, in my experience, that's for sure. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. Because uh, that... I, I honestly, I did start thinking, yeah, I know what they're up to. You know, they're just trying to, you know, in that mindset. And actually when you're not well, you're, you're much more mm. inclined to think that way too, I think. And um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, Laura, there's obviously a lot of research behind why these things get implemented um, and, and I, I suppose justified in the first instance. So, you know, what are the sort of statistics or what are what's the uh, justification piece i guess for being active in this space like what what does the actual landscape of life in the emergency services look like from from your perspective as a researcher yeah so there's been a lot of work done in this area about the mental health of um, emergency services workers and we do know that you know the statistics aren't looking super great um so basically we have higher rates of mental health conditions in these professions we know that one in 2.5 employees and one in three volunteers have a diagnosed mental health condition which is yeah it's it's quite a it's quite a high rate in comparison to the general population um and we also know that they have higher rates of suicidal thoughts and plans than the general community which you know that's an avenue for that's something that we really want to address because these are yeah. these are serious um, serious things. We also know that ninety percent of first responders are exposed to serious workplace trauma, and that does occur in the context of occupational, organisational, and life stresses as well. So you're really just stacking up um, a, stre- a stressor on top of stressor, mm. and it's no wonder that people are needing help in that situation. Yeah. 
we also that's certainly that compounding effect of other factors is um, you know something I've come to learn a bit more about just recently through mm-hmm. through actually through talking to people like yourself. Um, but I, I didn't realise how compounding some of those things are on top of that unavoidable traumatic mm. event exposure, going going to you know going to traumatic scenes and and actually having to do that sort of work. But actually the compounding effect that the organisational factors have on top of that, I I didn't realise how serious that was as a harm uh, in in relation to harming the individual, you know, and and how much of a massive issue that is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's it's just that you can end up with too many stresses on your plate um, Mm -hmm. and it's not a surprise that people end up struggling to cope with that. Uh, and then you you know you you stack on something something for you know a normal life stressor so you know things as serious as as going through grief losing a loved one that kind of thing you add that to a, a you know a serious workplace stressor um, and a traumatic event that you're experiencing you know in the course of your job it's just too much um, right. for for a lot of people to handle and that's completely normal um, and is a reason why you know we want to intervene in this space and give people the tools to build that resilience before those things all stack mm. up and become too much yeah it's pretty hard ground to make up when you're in the middle of it it's, that's uh, right yeah, yeah it's too late then exactly yeah. And we also know, you know, as you were saying, that these events are cumulative as well. Um, so we've, we've found that employees who have been working in the emergency services for more than 10 years are twice as likely as, as those kind of at the beginning of their career to experience psychological distress. And they're six times more likely to experience symptoms of PTSD, which is, you know, quite wow. a, a serious increase in risk there. Yeah. yeah. That's a so, big factor. Yeah, that's a huge factor, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why early intervention is really important. So getting in before, you know, people have had that experience of cumulative trauma, giving them those skills early on so they can maintain their resilience and, you know, get to, you know, give as much as they want to to their organisation and to their job, that their career that they're passionate about uh, and not burn out and, you know, not develop PTSD. That's what we want for people. Mm. Yeah. Has the research ever explored time limiting the that sort of operational work for for emergency services workers and the only reason I'm asking is I know there's a you know there's some commentary around how many times military people should be allowed to deploy overseas mm. and things like that so in recognition of how stressful it is while they're on deployment and then saying well hang on it's not right to send someone five times over to Afghanistan there should be a limit of three times or something like that mm. because of the the elevation I guess in their likelihood of having trouble with that that line of work is there has there ever been an exploration of ways to limit the time emergency services people are allowed to do that sort of work I don't. I can't see how it could ever happen, but I, I've just wondered whether there's any research that you know of that's out there about it. I'm not. I can't speak to that. I'm not sure. Uh, it is honestly. It's it. It's an incredibly um, important topic that you've brought up because I, I do think that's that's really interesting um, to see if there is maybe a you know a ceiling beyond which um, you know most people struggle. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm not aware of that research. I think that it should be done if it hasn't been done already. Uh, and you know, like you say, though, I I don't know what the what the recommendation would be if we do find that kind of ceiling effect. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, because obviously, you know, we, we need people to stay in these jobs if they yeah. can. They have this incredible wealth of experience and they've gone through all this training, um, you know, and, and, and you know, develop skills and wisdom that's yeah, certainly very there's, valuable. There's a big downsides to limiting it, I can see as well. But Certainly. Um, I, th- I know the New South Wales Police are looking at strategies to limit how long people do particular roles, mm. probably a little bit more like the military where mm. they're only allowed to do this role for a certain amount of time before they've got to rotate out. And then they can come back after a period of rotating out. But mm. you know, I think uh, the the spin-off of that is going to be a whole bunch of additional organisational stress for that person that just wants to keep doing that job that they like or they're in. That's and true. if they get forced out of it for a period of time into a role that they don't want to do, then that's, you know, that's stress within itself. Yes. I don't know how successful that's going to be, but um, you know, I've certainly heard some comments by of people that are in there now going, I, I'm not going out of the job that I'm doing, mm. or you know, really resistant to it. So I don't know that that'll have the desired effect uh, for for everybody. Unfortunately, being forced out of things, but um, true, yeah, it's, it's it seems like it's a, nice a given an option out. To... But yeah, I don't know, yes. but. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the solutions are uh, something we'll solve here in an hour, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately not. It would be nice if we could solve all the, the world's yeah. problems on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get there one day if I hang around long <laughs> enough. Who knows? Um, one of the things that I know we've spoken a little bit about offline is the cultural piece or the suitability of clinicians that are working with emergency services workers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I know from my own experience, some some are amazing. Some of the psychologists and, and people in that care system for um, this are amazing, but they aren't all. And um, I know there are steps toward trying to come up with ways of better informing or better preparing therapists and clinicians in that first responder mental health space that are being done by Phoenix. So could you give Mm -hmm. us a bit of a rundown on how that goes? Because there is a lot of concern from people like me about, uh, I I guess, not trusting or or it it might not even be trust. It's probably more about they don't get me or they don't understand in, in the sense of that emergency services worker's perception of that psychologist. And whatever feedback they're getting from them, you know, it, it's it's making them leave that session with a feeling of not being understood. Yeah, and, yeah, and being very a very unhelpful interaction. So, what's uh, I know Phoenix are doing a bit in that space. Could could you give us a bit of a rundown on what that is? Absolutely, yeah. So this isn't my personal um, piece of work. Uh, it's being spearheaded by my colleague Abdullah Arjman, who is fantastic at what he does, um, and also, um, yeah, our our um, colleague Tracy Varka, who's um, uh, yeah, effectively kind of at, at the head of uh, a whole program of work, including the the solar project that I'm working on. Um, so yeah, so they have been doing as part of the the Center for Excellence in Emergency Service Worker Mental Health, um, which is kind of situated at Phoenix, Australia. Yeah. They've been conducting interviews with mental health clinicians who work with first responders and also uh, with the first responders themselves who have accessed mental health services. And 
you know, Abdullah has sat down with with a whole bunch of people and, you know, had very long conversations with them about their experiences um, kind of providing and receiving this kind of mental health care and the kinds of things that are that, that work and the kinds of things that don't work. And, you know, he, he found some really interesting things. And, well, I think one thing that's really interesting that's great about this research is that there's not really been any research that has talked to first responders about what they want out yeah. of mental health care. This is really kind of a kind of a world first piece of work, right. um, which is really exciting. You know, he he did an entire review of the literature and was like, there is nothing in this nothing space there. yet. Yeah. That's, right? that's actually surprising to me I because know. it's something that we whinge about a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, seriously, it, it's something that comes up a lot from, from the sort of, from my side of the, that, mm. that sort of interaction. It's certainly not, uh, wow, that's, that's unbelievable. I, I thought the same thing when Abdullah, yeah. you know, was telling me about about it and and you know sharing his research with me. So I do think it's um, uh, you know, this is this is incredibly important work, uh, absolutely, because we do and you know from from the interviews that he's done, the, the research that he's um he's compiled, we know that you know emergency service workers have a unique a new, unique culture and and very specific needs um, that differ quite significantly from the general population. You can't just throw any clinician into this role and expect them to be able to do it to the best standard possible. Um, yeah. You know, people who are working on the front lines need clinicians who have been trained in kind of cult, they, they've got this cultural competency in this area they need to know the ways that the job impacts on your mental health and you know that's specific to you know different you know different organizations and and different professions so you know like a police officer has different stresses to a firefighter mm. um has different stresses to you know a nurse uh who's yeah. who's working in the icu for example um, or a military veteran, you know, all of these, also all sorts of, um, you know, yeah, these it's professions. It's all very different, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it is incredibly important that they have this kind of cultural training ahead of time. Um, I know that, you know, Abdullah, uh, one of the pieces, he interviewed a lot of police officers. So one thing that they really respected was that if they had a clinician who had done a ride along, even though they're, you know, apparently they're yeah, very, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Apparently that's very difficult to organize, but, yeah. you know, if the clinician has like actually seen what their job is like in real time, not just read about it, not just heard about it, but actually yeah. been there on the on the ground, even if it's just for a few hours, that really made a difference to how they viewed their clinician and the kind of care that the clinician was able to give. Because all of a sudden it's like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and, I think that that'd yeah. bring a lot of credibility with it. I, I mm. just yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking about that on the fly, but it's um it's certainly something that you'd recognise as as being, you know, one of like under a person that's actually taken the effort to go and see what your world was like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I can see that being a huge step. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it also came up that there was a real value of kind of trust and respect and needing to trust that person and make sure that they were someone who understood what that you were going through. So, yeah, yeah I, think that's, I think that's really important as well. Uh, and the clinicians agreed that, you know, taking a holistic approach and, and really understanding all of the factors was something that helped them um, yeah, right. do a better job and, and you know, connect more effectively with their clients. We also found through this work that um, that people in emergency service professions 
really appreciated uh, evidence-based treatments. They wanted, yeah. you know, things like um, prolonged exposure therapy. They wanted EMDR. They, yeah, all of these kinds of things for for post-traumatic stress disorder and um, and other kinds of trauma-related conditions were really well received, and they worked yeah. when yeah. they were yeah. delivered by a clinician who was, you know, kind of culturally competent, who understood the pressures, who understood, you know, how best to treat. Uh, this particular unique mm. population. I think that's one of the things that was a big game changer for me. Like my first psychologist when I basically when I went off work, she mm. she was able to explain, I suppose, the the science behind some of the things that we were doing rather than it just being this thing that I had to accept. And she she actually took the time to explain, you know, how the brain works, how how different strategies would work and what the mechanism of EMDR, like um, mm. eye movement. Desensitization. Desensitization and reprocessing. reprocessing. That's it. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets me every time. Anyway, <laughs> she, she took the time to actually explain why that works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, rather than actually just going through other cognitive behavioural therapy sort of yep. things that are, are in uh, – you know, it's a terrible way to explain it, but a bit more fluffy um, uh, and less, you know, a, a bit harder for me to actually grapple with the physics mm. or the science behind why it would work. And that's, I think that just that one little step alone, um, you know, she, she you know, her, her whole approach to everything was so much better than any other psychologists I'd ever seen through work programs, even, even people working for those agencies, like, was a lot better. So, uh, yeah, it, just, it makes such a massive difference. That's um, great. Yeah. No, like just having that confidence in that person that they actually, they even understand your querying mind about you being there and, and actually dealing with that element of it as well. I think that's, um, yeah, it's, it's a whole piece that I think has been missed uh, in that preparatory piece for these people to work with people like me, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a yeah because I, I don't doubt I'm not challenging <laughs> <laughs> in a lot of ways, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so exactly. Uh, or can you tell me how Phoenix Australia is is actually doing that, or what what does that actually look like um, in in how they're actually working with clinicians that end up working with people like me. Yeah, so I don't want to speak too much to the clinical side of things since that's not my area. I'm, um, you know, I'm in research. So mm-hmm. basically what I can say is that, you know, the work that I've been talking about, these interviews with um, with clinicians and first responders uh, is the beginning of a program of work that's going to hopefully continue. Um, yeah, right. And, and, you know, there will be, hopefully we'll be kind of developing some things around guidelines for clinicians um, and that, you know, that would be fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. I don't... Yeah, I'm not 100% sure what's going to come out of this, but, you know, yeah. we do want to take this program of research forward uh, and I think there are some really exciting things that can be done with this this research um, yeah. and some, you know, hopefully some clinician training at, at some stage. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So is, is it Phoenix that has the online program for clinicians that they can do uh, as an awareness piece at this point in time, I think? Is yeah, that- so we've, we've got a trauma-informed care 
kind of training offering. Um, right. Yeah. So we do we do have that. We are, we actually we offer a lot of different kinds of training. Again, not my not my personal area of expertise, yeah, yeah. so I don't want to speak too too strongly to it. But yeah, you can check out the the Phoenix Australia website and just you know tap that into Google and and have a look at our offerings. We um we do offer training to you know individuals but also organisations in kind of being trauma informed in a workplace in any kind of workplace. So you know we've worked with all sorts of organizations, big yeah. and small, you know, to improve their awareness around that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's there's all sorts of things on there if anyone is interested in checking them out and seeing what uh, might be appropriate. Yeah. Well, what I'll do, I'll put the links to the Phoenix, these different elements of the Phoenix um, programs in the uh, show notes just uh, as an easy reference point. Yeah. Awesome. That'd be great. Oh, one thing about the... Um, about what we've been we've been speaking about uh, the work we've done um, with first responders, um, seeing how what they what benefits they get from from care uh, it, that I didn't mention earlier is that um, we find and it actually speaks to what you were talking about before about um, having a clinician that could explain to you why you know how how your treatment. Um, worked and why you needed to do it and yeah, you know right. the, the way in which it um, was impacting your mental health um, we also found uh, well we at least we think we kind of would make a strong suggestion and we think this is going to be really helpful is potentially using measurement-based care so the idea of kind of you know, at the beginning of a thera- therapeutic process, you might um, fill out a, a, a scale that measures, yep. you know, your mental health. Maybe it's a, a, um, something about PTSD. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's all of those things. Maybe it's something else. Um, and we can actually track your progress across time. So you're getting, you're going to get, you know, this reinforcement of like, not, it's not just like, oh, I'm, I think maybe I'm better or my therapist is saying I'm yeah. doing well or, you know, you're actually getting a concrete objective piece of evidence that you're, you're, imp- you're making improvements and, you know, people, um, people in this piece of research found that kind of reinforcement incredibly helpful and really motivating as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, look, I could see, I could see that would be that piece and, um, I guess it also, to a degree, would hold you to account because it's very easy to do what do what you do and mm-hmm. mask it and hide it and tell mm-hmm. people you're okay. But if you're actually looking at stats that are showing you that you need to keep working on it or do something different too, that's another uh, that would be another benefit of actually having those me- like measurable outcomes from from where you're at. Yes, that's a really good point as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we want to make sure that people actually know how they're doing and and are accessing care when they need to. Because uh, yeah. I know that it can be it can be really easy to just you know to you know give it a stiff stiff upper lip and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. be stoic about it. You know, we have a real culture of stoicism in Australia. You know, particularly historically, and uh, yeah, I think it's that's that's great in some instances but it's also really important to reach out for for help when you need it and to talk mm. about these kinds of things i know that's something i've definitely mentioned in the past about myself you know just thinking no one would recognize and mm. <laughs> you know knowing that i wasn't traveling well but thinking you know i can I, i've got this i'll hide it no one will know and just cracking on and pushing and pushing and pushing and uh yep 
now that I know what I know, I know I was doing exactly the wrong thing because it was actually making where I'm at now so much harder to navigate. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. Yeah. When you're surrounded by a culture that tells you that pushing through and pushing it down and putting on a brave mm. face is the right thing to do and mm. the strong thing to do, then, you know, it's it's really easy to just walk that path even mm. though, you know, later down the track you're like that, 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 hurt, that was harmful rather than helpful. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think it's important to, to challenge that culture and, um, you know, I, I think a lot of mental health services are trying to do that, but it's, uh, you know, it's a slow, it's slow going, you know, this is a, mm. a really deeply entrenched culture um, yeah, it is. that yeah. has, you know, deep roots all the way back to, yeah, <laughs> all the way back, you to know, hundreds not, of no years doubt. ago. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- you know, the thing I think I didn't really recognize was doing that. The, the the unfortunate ultimate outcome, if it doesn't sort itself out, is actually you lose everything that you want and you're mm-hmm. trying to keep, and it gets taken away from you in in a way that you can't mm-hmm. control. And actually, that's um that's the ultimate bad outcome, really, because you you yeah. think you're working, you you think you're holding this thing together, and then it ends up getting taken off you because of uh, where you where you end up putting yourself. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's sort of. Which must not be what a, you hope for. No. No, I was going to say it must be a devastating experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. That. research field um i'm sure there's a lot more going on than uh the solar program and and what we've talked about so what else have you been or, or what what are you maybe looking at in the future is probably a, a better question to ask mm, that is a great question i mean yeah we're always we're always looking at um you know ways to ways to help people uh um, who aren't you know receiving the kind of care that that they need um you know i personally you know have a have an interest in um using digital interventions um so you know things things like apps and wearable devices and that kind of thing to improve um healthcare particularly around accessibility as we were talking about earlier Yes, so I am really interested in using digital interventions. Um, I've also been involved, probably my other major project um, is working with my colleague Olivia Metcalf, uh, who won some funding um, some time ago now from the National Health and Medical Research Council, looking at how to uh, basically treat people who are experiencing anger after they've um, experienced a traumatic event. uh, Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's something that a lot of people don't realize is it can be a symptom of experiencing trauma. A lot of people just think, oh, it's it's post traumatic stress disorder, or or you're fine. But anger can be a really common symptom of of, of PTSD itself. But also, it can it, it can just appear by itself, um, and we call it post traumatic anger in that instance. It's not. Um, it's not a diagnosable mental health condition at the moment. It's not recognised um, in our kind of diagnostic yep. manuals yet, uh, but we do have a lot of evidence uh, to show that it's something that happens. Um, oh. And, yeah, yeah, so we, we have people who end up with this kind of uncontrollable anger and rage and outbursts when they were very even-keeled people beforehand. Um, yeah, right. That's right, yeah. So it's it's been a really interesting um, population to work with 
because uh, I've done a lot of interviews um, similar to the solar project. Well, a, a bit different. I'm not kind of facilitating a, a therapeutic process uh, on this one, I'm, but yeah, I am yeah. interviewing people. Yeah. Um, so it is. It has been really fascinating talking to people about their experiences um, with with anger. Yeah, okay. So this is not just first responders you're talking about. This no, is a broader, this is broader the, community context. Or, yeah. That's right. Yeah, this is the general population. Um, yeah. And we, yeah, we, we actually have ended up working with a lot of women, um, you know, a lot of whom have experienced interpersonal violence. Right. Um, Yep. You know, partner violence, intimate partner yep. violence. Um, so yeah, and they they end up becoming really angry, and and they're very confused about why they're angry, and they yeah. often you know um, feel a lot of guilt and shame around that anger. And I think this is partly because we don't recognise it as a mental health condition. They're just like, oh, I'm fine. I'm just very angry right now. Yeah. You know, like I'm just getting a bit angry at my family or at my you know or when I'm you know when I'm driving or whatever the case may be. But in reality, this is a trauma response uh, and yeah. these people, you know, need treatment. But it can be very difficult to treat anger because it doesn't respond. You think that it might respond to to kind of mindfulness and meditation and that kind yeah. of thing and often that doesn't, that <laughs> doesn't say, That's probably the probably going to fuel it, yeah. <laughs> it trying can, to, Trying to impose yeah. that on top of it, yeah. That's right, yeah. So, you know, the what we do know, um, what we found kind of so far from this, this research, and again, this is kind of anecdotal evidence rather than um, – uh, statistics based because we are still in the process of um, of of kind of running the the numbers uh, at the moment. So, uh, but we we have found that a uh, a lot of people feel a lot better when they're checking in and thinking about their moods um, on a regular basis. So you know what we've done so far is given them um, a wearable device, so like a smartwatch they wear on yep. their wrist, and it, it kind of records their heart rate and heart rate variability and, and all sorts of kind of physiological measures of stress. Mm -hmm. And it also, we give them an app um, and they, on that app, we ask them four times a day, you know, have you been angry today and how angry have you been and have you yelled and have you thrown things or, you know, anything like that. Mm. Um, and just the act of thinking about what's, you know, have they, if they've been angry and what made them angry can really help people contextualise and, and realise, you know, what their mood has been like across the day because a lot of people don't check in with themselves and mm. it can be incredibly powerful to realize yeah what you've what you, how you've been feeling and you know oftentimes people are like wow i was uh i was a lot more angry than i thought and it was yeah, over right. stuff that wasn't that big a deal and and it's making me realize that i need to you know try and and change my my re reactions and then other people find that actually they're less angry than they thought and you know, actually, they're doing they're doing quite well. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's all like our perceptions of ourselves are, are yeah, so huh. impacted by um, external factors and and things. So yeah, it could, that can be a really powerful exercise. Yeah. Yes. Well, I know a few old sergeants that definitely suffered from that. <laughs> <laughs> I think every single yeah. job they went to, they were angry after. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and yeah. it's not surprising because you know those are the sergeants are the ones who've been doing that job for a long time, right? They've got yeah. that cumulative trauma uh, thing that we're talking about. Yeah, that's a lot of. I jobs. say that jokingly in that oh, context, no. but <laughs> I uh, yeah, I do I do mean it actually, and that's one of the things that I've mm. you know over the years looked back at the state that some of the people that I used to be managed or, you know, were were managed by, you know, how well those managers were travelling, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, now that I know what I know about where I'm at, I look at it and go, wow, 
they uh, they really did need some help. But anyway. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, as I've, I've talked to a lot of retired firefighters and, and some who retired quite some time ago, you know, they do talk about how things used to be used to be a lot worse and people uh, yeah. got help a lot a lot, a lot less often and uh, you know the the way to cope was to go down the pub and have a few beers you know that oh, yeah. was just yeah. that was the prescribed you know that was the the treatment that was the medicine yeah. if you didn't do that you were an outcast yeah. yes yeah. yeah and I can imagine that 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 culture um, is really strong and and, and mm. powerful and and uh, makes you feel like reaching out for help is difficult oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah for sure I did my PhD in neuropsychiatry research so I was working with um uh, functional MRI. So I did brain scans of young people with a range of different mental health conditions and uh, I was looking at how their brains work differently to people without mental health conditions. Right. Yeah, which is which is fascinating work and I really liked it. But I kind of came to the end of doing what was effectively, gosh, um, six years in that in that particular particular area because I also did a master's in the same same area. Right. Um, yep. So that was two years and then four or five years of PhD. So yeah, it's a, it's a long time in one spot. That's a long and, time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And very similar projects in the same office. I got to the end of that and I, you know, I got this job at Harvard, which was similar. It was actually working in PTSD as well, funnily enough, but it was going to be brain scans um, using MRI. And I was like, this is good, but what I what really drives me is making a measurable impact on people's lives right now. That kind of work absolutely makes a difference and is really important. We need it in science, but you can't see the impact that you personally are making that day or that month or that year, even, you know, maybe even that decade sometimes, depending on the kind of work you're doing. It's something that builds up over time. So for me, the the joy that I get out of this work is talking to people and making a difference to their lives. Like my favorite part of my job is talking to someone, getting to the end of the solar program with them, for example, and having them go, thank you so much. Like this has changed my life. Uh, this, this, you know, I'm going to tell everyone I know about this program yeah. and, and encourage them to do it. Um, I'm going to take some of the, the skills that I've learned and tell my family members and tell yeah, my yeah. community. It's, uh, it's really powerful and that's, you know, that's what makes me feel good about my, yeah, my cool. life and my job. So that's why yeah, I'm well, Phoenix. It's definitely, um, you know, and it's not, you know, from a, from a user point of view or from a, from a, the, I suppose the subject point of view, it's, uh, it's, I, I guess you complain about not a lot happening in, in the space that you're in, but it is, it's always nice to see people like yourself or, you know, organisations like Phoenix actually putting a lot of effort into, you know, making a difference for someone like myself. And mm. whether you agree with how it, like how, what format it's in or how it's delivered or whatever, um, the worst thing that could happen is no one's doing anything. So, yeah. you know, you you're giving it a go, you're, you're trying something new, something, you know, contemporary and it's it's great to see this stuff getting mainstreamed out there and, and yeah. you know, put into place in organisations that need it. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. Um, I agree. A lot of, and, and I know a lot of lot of people in, in my old sectors are pretty critical of the lip service that's organisationally mm. paid to some of these programs. For sure. And, you know, yes, you've got to go through an e-learning package and you click through the, you click the next button as fast as you can to get through because you've got five jobs, you know, backed up that you've mm. got to go and get on with. And, 
um, you know, it's not having the intended outcome. And this is, uh, you know, it's it's really good to, you know, feel that effort that's been put in from people like yourself to something that actually, you know, like like what I explained earlier is when I looked on that app for the first time, I went, wow, this is like the last 12 months of my life in the, you know, in an hour because mm-hmm. um, of how it had summarised so much stuff that I'd covered. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great tool to um, to have access to whenever it suits you. It's sort of those those things they've got to help. They have to they have to be helping. That's yeah. yeah, really glad to hear that. And I, you know, that's that's what we want. You know, we're we're sometimes we make these things, um, these these programs of work, these uh, these interventions, and they don't work out. And you know, they're not hitting the right spot. But mm. what we're trying to do is, you know, through this kind of iterative process, is uh, and and also co-designing with you know first responders. Um, you know, we want to make sure that they're not just clicking the next button real hard because yeah, it's yeah. not it's not hitting for them. You know, it's not it's not um, you know, it's not culturally appropriate. It's not something they're interested in or engaged in. We want to find ways to actually help rather than you know producing something that's useless. Yeah. Um, that's not you know that's not why we're here. We want to work with people. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's certainly something that yeah. I hope we're going to be able to do going forwards. But- the brain scan side of things too is quite mm. interesting from yeah. for someone like me that actually wants to see the problem, you know, mm. and you, you want to understand the science behind what's going on with you and what treatment you're participating in or undertaking or being subjected to is how is that physically helping me? What's that changing? Mm-hmm. How do I see that? So, you know, from a um, like scientific point of view, how – what – what would an MRI of a someone's brain that's really struggling with something like PTSD or depression look like? Like, how is that mm. different? Yeah, well, it's it's very much dependent on which disorder you're looking at. You'll see different changes in different areas of the brain depending on the disorder. Um, so, I don't, I haven't done heaps of research on neuroscience um, in PTSD. That wasn't my area. Um, but we do know that there are, you know, there are certain areas of the brain that are going to be operating differently. Mm-hmm. And as you undertake treatment, those areas start to normalise, like those areas of activity start to increase where they should be increased and decrease where they should be decreased. Right. Um you know, and you see those kind of neural changes link up with the changes, your kind of subjective changes in how you feel internally and your behavior as well. Um, so, you know, you can actually track the impact of treatment, which is really a really cool thing to see yeah. and something that I really enjoyed about that work. It'd be a really yeah. cool thing to be able to show someone too mm. that, uh, you know, you could actually see it. I mean, that's that's part of the big problem with psychology, I think, is it's really hard to see it. and. Um, Yes. Yes. And there are a lot of people in neuropsychiatry and neuroscience um, who are working on using MRI as, you know, basically a diagnostic tool, first of all, trying to to go, okay, I've got this brain scan. Is this someone who has PTSD or is this someone else, you know, someone without PTSD? So they're, they're working on that. They're also working on using it to predict treatment response because we know that, you know, some people with every disorder there are some people who are not going to respond to yeah. to classical yeah. treatments. There are some people who will respond to one type of treatment and not others. So I know I've had colleagues who've done this kind of work in depression, and um, you know it's quite 
quite famous that, uh, you know, there is treatment resistant depression. So they can try all of the drugs, all of the therapies, and they're still not going to respond. And maybe they need, you know, like um, electroconvulsive therapy, for example, um, which is not, it's certainly not a first line treatment. That's something you try all the way down the line. Maybe they need, um, they need treatment with uh, ketamine, which is something um, that has, is, you know, very cutting edge at the There's moment. There's a couple, of, couple yeah. of guys that I go to PTSD group with are mm. in that trial program. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And like for myself, like I, me and quite a few of the other um, guys are doing TMS. So, uh, yes, you know, also for me, really exciting. so transcranial magnetic stimulation TMS. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, that's sort of, and, and I think I quite, quite readily accepted that because when, when it was explained to me what, physically would that would happen like what mm. what that would actually do I went, okay i understand that and um yes you know then i'm quite on board with you know getting on with it because mm-hmm. um, i can sort of understand the mechanics of it i think so that's yeah for me personally that's been a big part of accepting certain treatments or, mm. or believing in them to think they can help me at least anyway and and uh yes. yeah and getting on with it yeah that's that's great i do think it's important that we treat um, kind of mental health service users as adults who can understand, you mm. know, the the kind of the background and the mechanisms of these things rather than just being like, here, do this CBT, yeah. just do your homework, you know, yeah. like you're, yeah. you're a kid in school. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> I don't think that's... It's a good way for not, me not to do my homework, I tell exactly, you, <laughs> when I don't I'm, understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm exactly the same, you know, I, I need someone to be like, here's the reason why. Yeah. Um, and I think we should treat everyone with that kind of, that kind of, kind of care and respect yeah. and dignity, basically, because yeah. um, I think we're going to get better treatment reactions. Um, yeah, so... Yeah. Yeah, guaranteed. Well, people like people like me, absolutely. Yeah, it's, mm, it's, it's critical. Everyone is different. It's true, but yes, yeah. yes. So mm. yeah, kind of circling back, I do think you know it'll be really exciting um, if we can start using these kinds of tools like MRI um, to uh, you know as an adjunct to to therapy in terms of you know is this person going to be the person who responds to treatment A or treatment B, yeah. um, and then maybe you know can we track their progress over time? The issue is just that we need it to be a lot less expensive than it currently is. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, it's like a thousand dollars per scan at the moment. Ouch. Yeah, yeah right. I know, I know, yeah. right? Yeah, that's um that's it's it's very expensive. And that was gosh, that was a few years ago. The last time I scanned someone was twenty nineteen. So right, okay. it's probably a bit more expensive now. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's that it's that barrier to access. Um really yeah. we need these machines to to be less expensive. But unfortunately, they are giant magnets. They're very expensive giant magnets that have to be cooled with hydrogen. Um yeah, yeah so <laughs> yeah. they're expensive yeah. installations. Scientific gear. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Listen, I've really appreciated your time today. Uh God, we've covered some Territory. Um, yes. I, I didn't actually think we'd talk about half of that stuff, but yeah, look, I really appreciate it. And um, look, I, I hope, I really hope the Solar M program gets the uptake, not not just within Fire Rescue New South Wales, but you know, in those type of agencies across the country that can mm. utilise it. And and um, you know, it won't be for everyone, but it'll be for some. And um, you know, I it'll and hopefully people embrace it and you know get themselves ready to keep on doing those jobs as as best they can and yeah it's sort of 
it's a it's a great step forward to have have access to something like that in your pocket. Yeah. Know? Yeah, I agree. That's that's the thing. If we can help even a few people with this and it's it's the thing that makes their life better, means they can keep doing the job that they love, means yeah. that they can, you know, they they don't develop, you know, a more serious mental health condition, that's us very happy. You yeah, know, that's why we're doing the work. So, yeah, fingers yeah. crossed that, uh, yeah, everything goes really well and, and we can roll it out and, and keep helping people. Yeah, well, we thank you for your efforts and your, uh, yeah, you, you know, trying to trying to help. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure um, yeah. chatting with yeah, it's you. It's been good to talk to you again. Yeah, <laughs> it has, yeah. 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 All right. Thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast, people on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heart2heartwalk.org or just Google it.